Tonight we're in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to finish uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. And then next week we're getting back to our Through the Bible study. And we're going to start the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is where we left off. Second Peter chapter 3 tonight. Have you guys enjoyed Second Peter? Yeah, it's a good, good book. Let's wait upon the Lord uh, together and just press into his presence and worship him and those needs in our lives as well. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are with us right now. We thank you that you are light and you dispel the darkness. The heaviness that is on our hearts, Lord, we just pray that the power of your word would come and bring breakthrough in our lives. For everybody listening right now on the live stream, those of us that are in person here in the sanctuary, we don't want this just to be another Bible study, but for us to take to heart your word, that this world is going to be burned up with fervent heat, and you're going to create a new heaven and a new earth. For us to be mindful of being steadfast. Would you strengthen us through your grace? In Jesus' name, amen. The battle is really won and lost in the mind with our thoughts. And there's a war that's taking place in our minds. When we give our thoughts in a particular direction over time, then that's going to form our actions, and our actions going to become our character. I want you to picture with me for a moment Peter, this, this great, lovable disciple at the end of his life. What we love about Peter is he's relatable. He too struggled with sin and struggled with opening up his mouth before he'd given his words much thought. As he has grown old in the Lord, now he's facing being martyred. He has to be thinking about Christ crucified as he was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Now it's his turn to die a martyr's death. And this is his last letter. These are the last words that we have pinned from Peter. And he challenges us in this area of our minds. In 1 Peter, he encouraged us to gird up our minds That's this analogy to have our minds ready for action. And here in his parting chapter, it's to be mindful. To really be mindful of scoffers that are going to come and tell you that Jesus is never going to return. To be mindful of God's timing. That a thousand years to the Lord is just a, a thousand years to us is just a day unto the Lord. And then to also be mindful of steadfastness, that God is calling us to endurance and he's calling us to steadfastness. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by the way of a reminder. The purpose of Peter writing is not to teach something new, but to remind them of things that they've already learned. It's easy to forget. It's easy to not be sharp with the things that God has, has taught us. So he, he stirs us up in this way of reminder. I'm sure all of us remember something that we had forgotten and something that we should remember. Our phones do a pretty good job of alerting us of a commitment that we have on our calendar, but sometimes we're not paying attention to our phones. One of my least favorite things is missing an appointment that I have. I've got an appointment scheduled, and for some reason I don't get all the details right, I forget it. 
I might look at my phone and it's like, you're supposed to be here in 30 minutes. Oh, praise the Lord for the iPhone, right? That reminder that is, is given. And this is that reminder that the Lord is speaking to us that moves us to action. Verse two, that you may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostle of the Lord and Savior. So specifically to be mindful of the words that were spoken by the Old Testament prophets, the prophecies, but then also specifically what the apostles had taught, the New Testament. In totality, to be mindful of the word of God, to be meditating upon the word of God. This is so important in our relationship with the Lord. God's word is sharper than a two-edged sword. And for us to take time to be in the scriptures and to be mindful and meditating upon the scriptures. In verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. So if you're taking notes tonight, write down mindful of scoffers. Here Peter says in the last days, there's going to come scoffers who say that Christ isn't going to return. That Christ is not going to come back. And this is one of the signs of the last days, is there will be those that mock the scriptures, mock the second coming of Christ, mock creation, mock the flood. It seems as though that scoffers are on the rise, that there's more and more people that look at the word of God and they make fun of it and make fun of those who believe and trust in the word of God. But one thing's for sure, the closer that we get to the second coming of Christ, the more there will be those that scoff at the word of God. One of my prayers is that during these difficult times for us as a nation in the world is that there would be a return, there would be a revival, there would be awakening to the word of God. The importance of the word of God, believing the word of God, taking it as it is written, taking it the way that the Lord has spoken to it and not twisting it, not perverting it and not changing it. But scoffers will come in the last days, and they're walking according to their lusts. They're motivated by their own desires. They're motivated by their own sinful flesh because the word of God is contrary to our lust, isn't it? Jesus is Lord, and he calls us to follow him, and it's a death to our selfishness, and it's the abundant life, but it does oppose our lusts. So these scoffers, they wanna allow their lusts to run wild, they want their flesh to rule the day, so they're going to scoff at the word of God. And specifically pointing to creation and the flood in verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that the word of God, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. So the scoffers, they're declaring, where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers have fallen asleep, you have these generations upon generations upon generations that have passed away, and yet Christ has not come. So where is the second coming of Christ? Hopefully in our hearts and minds, we don't get to a place where we start to second guess or doubt or question the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead and was on the Mount of Olives, he then ascended to be with the Father. 
And the disciples are looking up to heaven. Can you imagine? They're watching Jesus go, 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 going, gone. And they can't help but continue to look up. And the angel comes and gives a message and goes, guys, what are you doing? You've got a job to do. And Christ is going to return on this same mountain that he ascended to the Father. That's the promise. Jesus is going to return on the Mount of Olives. The Bible is specific about the place. The Mount of Olives overlooks uh, Jerusalem. In my opinion, the most valuable piece of real estate uh, on the planet, the Mount of Olives. Christ is coming back. But if we're not careful, there's this tendency for us to start to think, is he really coming back? Is it possible that Jesus could come in my generation and in my lifetime? Look at all of these other generations that hoped for the second coming of Christ and they passed away. Christ isn't going to come because Jesus taught us that we should watch and wait expectantly for the second coming of Jesus. He wants us to be ready for his coming. He wants us looking for his coming, looking for his soon return. There's people in the body of Christ that have different positions on end times and their theology of eschatology. But whatever your view of end times is, you should have an expectation that Christ could come at any moment because he told us to be watching. As you read the text, that's very clear. Live your life in a way where you're ready for the second coming of Christ. It does affect us if we believe that Jesus could come today. What if we went through today going, maybe this is the day. Maybe this is the day that Jesus is going to return. What if we went through tomorrow going, Jesus, come. Lord, come quickly. One of the redemptive facts that's happening through all of the turmoil in our country is it causes us to look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Amen? This is all leading up to the second coming of Christ. The Bible ends on a crescendo. The Bible ends on an exclamation point. There's no question of who's victorious. Christ is victorious. He's the coming king who makes all things right. But the scoffers want to come in and say, look, you're foolish if you believe that. Jesus is not going to come back. And then specifically what they forget is that God spoke the world into existence. Let's take a, a look, a close look at verse 5. They w- willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the, the water. What is becoming more and more popular is this idea of theistic evolution, that God designed and created the world through the evolutionary process. But the evolutionary process doesn't fit with the Genesis 1 account. It doesn't fit with what we just read. It doesn't say that things evolved into existence. It says God spoke and bam, it was. That's what it declares. That's the aspect of his power, that he was that powerful to speak. And in the moment that he spoke, the world came into existence and the earth came out of the water and light from darkness. But the scoffers willfully put that out of their minds. This kind of forgetfulness is not, where did I place my keys? I can't find my phone. That type of forgetfulness, which I do very often, it's this choice to say, I don't want to be aware of this. I don't want to be 
in a place where I'm acknowledging that there's a creator. Because if we acknowledge that there's a creator, then guess what? We have to be accountable to the creator. If we just evolved, then we're not accountable to anyone and we can run wild in our lusts. Please hear this. It's important that you believe that God created the universe, that he's the creator of you personally, the creator of all of those around us. Don't shortchange God. Don't reduce him down to something that he's not. Don't join the camp of the scoffers. Church, we have to decide, do we believe the Bible or not? All of it. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't go, well, man, that creation stuff seems a little bit too wild for me. I can't believe that God created the universe. But you believe in the resurrection, right? You believe Jesus rose from the dead as a believer, So if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, what's the big deal with creation? You with me? He he rose from the dead. Of course he is the creator. And how you see others and how you see yourself goes back to this reality that God created you. So the scoffers want to put the knowledge of God as the creator out of their hearts and out of their minds. And also the flood, in verse 6, by which the world then existed, perished, being flooded with water. Seems like a lot of people want to debate the worldwide flood. Go, I believe the Bible, but I don't believe the the worldwide flood. And again, I think it goes to this principle of we don't want to be accountable to God. Isn't it a bit of a fearful thing if God judged the whole world with a flood and only saved eight people, Noah and his family? Isn't that a little bit sobering? Doesn't that bring into perspective God's judgment? And if it wasn't for Christ dying on the cross for our sins, where we would stand before a holy God, and that, that's uncomfortable. So it's easier to say, well, I don't believe that the flood happened. I don't believe that God is going to bring judgment to those that reject Christ. You will find a lot of people that believe that there's no such thing as hell. But it's hard to read the scriptures and come away from that conclusion. Sin deserves punishment, and hell is very real. Jesus taught on on hell. That's why he died upon the cross, to save us from hell. So let's examine, is there any evidence for the flood? I think there's lots of evidence. This is an article from the Answers in Genesis. Three evidences. The first is... Fossils of sea creatures are high above sea level due to the ocean waters having flooded over the continents. We found fossils in the Himalayas. How in the world is there sea creature fossils in the Himalayas? The only way that that could be is through the worldwide flood. It's an amazing proof to the flood. Evidence number two. We have the rapid burial of plants and animals. We find extensive fossil graveyards that are exclusively preserved fossils. So it's not just a few fossils here and there, but huge fossil graveyards of plants and animals. There's some pretty cool rock shops in the Canyon City area if you're ever driving through the Arkansas River Valley. Fossils are so common, you can pick up a pretty cool fossil for 30 bucks. And that's to the degree that we have these these fossils, these fossil graveyards. Evidence number three is there's, 
rapidly deposited sediment layers spread across vast areas. Let me attempt to explain. We find rock layers that can be traced all across continents, even between continents. And physical features in those stratas indicate they were deposited rapidly. For example, the tappets, the sandstone and the red wall limestone of the Grand Canyon can be traced across the entire United States. So did you catch that? The kind of stone that's in the Grand Canyon is all throughout the United States, up into Canada, and even across the Atlantic Ocean to England. The chalk beds of England, the white cliffs of Dover, can be traced across Europe into the Middle East and are also found in the Midwest of the United States and Western Australia. So when the flood happened, there's all of this shifting in the rock layers that we still see in geology today that can be only be answered through a worldwide flood. Another evidence that points to a worldwide flood is most cultures in their oral history have an account of the flood. You go to all of these different cultures, these ancient cultures, and they've got a record of the worldwide flood. So when you meet a scoffer, and you will, that says, I can't believe you believe the Bible. I can't believe that you believe creation. I can't believe that you believe in the flood. And I believe in God, but I don't believe in creation. And I don't believe in the flood. And they look at you like you're a Neanderthal. Just remember 2 Peter chapter 3. There's going to be scoffers that come in the last days. Have a hunch. I have a hunch. It's very possible in your lifetime, in a greater way, it's going to cost us something to believe the Bible, right? It's not cultural to believe the Bible, but we're not the first generation to face that. There's a lot of generations that have had to choose whether they were going to honor God or men, that have had to choose to say, I'm either believing God's word or not. And the exciting thing about that opposition is it could really ignite our faith, could really get us to that place of saying, man, I know the word and I'm owning this for myself. I love to get out into God's creation, especially here in Colorado. It's a beautiful time of year with the leaves changing here in our city or driving up Highway 24. And isn't it cool to sit out in God's creation and think about, man, God spoke all of this into existence. My father spoke all of this into existence. It's a big deal what you believe about creation and the flood. Verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So right now, the world is being preserved by the same word, by God's power. He's able to preserve this earth as long as he sees necessary. Just as he spoke it into existence, He's also preserving it by the same word, but it's reserved for fire until the day of judgment. There's coming a day of judgment where God is going to burn up the heavens and the earth. It's going to melt away. This earth is not eternal. It's temporary. There's a reservation that's made for judgment for this earth. You think if you've got a reservation for a plane flight or reservation for a dinner, And the earth has a reservation in its ultimate destruction. Isaiah 34 verse 4 says, All the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, 
and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine, as fruit falling from a fig tree. The heavens, the galaxies, the universe, God's just going to roll it up like a scroll. Say, okay, I'm done. There's an end to all things. So we're mindful of scoffers, but number two, we're mindful of God's timing. But my beloved, this emphasis that we're loved by God, do not forget this one thing. Peter says, I don't want you to forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Isn't time so interesting? Remember when you're eight years old, third grade, one year as an eight-year-old is forever. When your birthday is nine months away, oh, it's nine months away. Christmas is 90 days away? That's so long. I feel like third grade lasted forever for me personally. I can still remember being in that third grade classroom. You know, just trying to memorize multiplication tables, listening to history, waiting for recess. But now in your life, you're no longer an eight-year-old. How quick does a year go? Super fast. Even a year like this. A friend told me in a text, he goes, I learned a new cuss word. I was like, this is a bizarre text. It's like, well, what cuss word did you learn? He's like, 2020. That, that was, it's a joke. But even a year like this, 2020, is, goes quick, doesn't it? We're, we're coming to the end of this year, and it's going to wrap up fast. Our perspective of time as we get older, it very much changes. How about for God, who is eternal? Who is eternal? What's 6,000 years to God? What's 8,000 years to God? What if he chooses to not come for another 1,000 years? Does that mean he's not faithful to his promise? No, time is completely different for God. In verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God's not slow concerning his promise. Sometimes we're, we're slow or slack with our promises. We give our word with something and we're slow to follow through. Maybe we'll never follow through. That's not the case with God. He's going to be faithful to this promise to return and create a new heaven and a new earth. But the reason that he's waiting is he doesn't want any to perish. He doesn't want any to go to hell. What if Christ would have come back in 2016? How many people have come to know Christ in the last four years? How many of you have come to know Christ in the last four years? What if Christ would have come December 2019? How many people have come to know Christ in 2020? Receive Christ as their Savior. So God is waiting and he's tarrying for the purpose of giving people the opportunity to come to know him. And we need to understand God's heart here. He will give judgment to those that reject Christ over their whole life, but his heart's to save, his heart's to be gracious. 
His heart is to see someone repent from sin and trust Christ and become the child of God. That's his will and his desire. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The day of the Lord, this ultimate judgment, when God judges this earth, it's burnt up with a fervent heat. God's no longer holding things together. All he has to do is let go. And the atoms pull apart and everything is burned up. Imagine Pike's Peak burned up. Imagine the Milky Way galaxy burned up. Imagine the Pacific Ocean burned up, Poof, gone. But notice what it says here also in verse 10 is that the works, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The Smithsonian, gone. American history, gone. History of World War II, gone. France, gone. Africa, gone. All the works, all the degrees, boom, gone. All the work accomplishments, they're done. All the vacations, all the great music, it's all burned up. It's all temporary. It's not eternal. It's not going to, to last. So we're challenged in these next few verses looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, let me go back to verse 11 because it's really important. Is that okay if I do that? Then we'll get to verse 12. Verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Good thing I didn't forget that one right there. Be a pastoral faux pas for sure. This is the heart of this text is in light of the fact that Christ is going to return. This earth is going to be burned up. Who should we be? What kind of person ought we to be in the way we live our lives, holy conduct, and godliness? What's really going to matter at this day of judgment? The only thing that's going to matter is our relationship with the Lord and living for Him. That focus on Christ, truly living for Christ. I mean, think about it. Man, everything burned up. I was uh, born in Grants Pass, lived in Medford, the Rogue Valley. It was my home as a kid, still has a special place in my heart. 2,800 homes were burned this summer in the, in the Rogue Valley. It's a small town. It's, it's not the size of, of Colorado Springs. Lots of homes. You think about, man, if your home's burned up, what's really important? At the end of the day, if you had to take only a few possessions out of your home, what really matters? Does the couch matter? Does your bed matter? Does your carpet matter? It's like, bummer, I paid way too much for that carpet and now it's burned up. This whole world is going to be burned up. So what should we be focused on? This is hard for us to even imagine. Hard for us to even comprehend this world being burned up, but it's going to happen. So where should our focus be? Then we get to verse 12 of looking and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Looking is we're looking forward to Christ coming. That's where our expectation is. It's the idea of watching. 
watching with anticipation? Is that what we're looking for? Is that what we're hopeful for? I hope that that's where we're putting our expectation on. Then how do we hasten the day of the Lord? How do we help usher in the the day of the Lord? That's, That's a good question. In verse 13, it says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promises, look for a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. The way that we hasten in the day of the Lord is to proclaim the gospel. Because if the only reason that God is waiting is to give more people the opportunity to be saved, then by proclaiming his name, we're hastening in the coming of the Lord. That's how much we're looking forward to the coming of the Lord. It's like, man, we want people to be ready. We want people to, to be ready for the second coming of Christ, to be prepared for this ultimate judgment. So we're looking for Christ's coming, but we're also looking for the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation 21 speaks of the new heaven and the new earth. Would you turn with me over to Revelation 21, the very end of the Bible, in verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. No death, no more tears, no crying, no more hearing somebody sob in sorrow, mourn in death. It's done. The former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountains of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. That new heaven and that new earth. What's that going to be like? You know, we imagine what the new heaven is like. God's throne and God dwelling with us, his people. But what's the new earth going to be like? It's a new heaven and a new earth, and it's going to be like the old earth, but better. No presence of sin, no presence of brokenness, completely made new. We get to roam the new heaven and the new earth with God, get to see him and be like him. Think of a loved one who's passed away in Christ, you're in Christ, you're going to spend all of eternity together. All of eternity exploring this new heaven and this new earth. This is what we look forward to. Jesus knew the reality of heaven, and when he spoke to us of comfort and hope, he always caused us to focus upon heaven. Do not let your hearts be troubled because I go to prepare a place for you. In this world, you will 
have difficulty, we'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome this world. It's not an earthly hope. It's not an earthly expectation. It's a heavenly hope. Peter writes here and says, we look forward to this new heaven and this new earth. That gives us great comfort. Christ is going to return. He's going to make all things right. He's going to judge this world and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. We get to enjoy it for all of eternity. Absent from sin, dwelling in the presence of God with a glorified body. Amazing. Amazing. We go on into verse 14, back to 2 Peter 3. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blemish. So in light of the fact that we're looking forward to heaven, in light of the fact that we're going to spend all eternity with God, then let's give diligence. Let's give diligence to making sure that our life is without spot or blemish. Having a hope for heaven should impact the way that we live our lives on a daily basis. This hope of heaven doesn't cause us to disconnect from this life, but it says, I'm going to heaven, so I want to be effective in this life. God, help me to be fully committed to you without spot or blemish. The word diligent, it's an imperative in the Greek, which means it commands action. It commands effort. Pay attention. Be diligent to walk with the Lord, to rely upon his grace. And consider the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. So as we think about eternity, we think about the suffering of Christ. And this word consider is also an imperative, which demands action from us. We're to stop and think about the suffering of Christ, what he went through upon the cross, Taking upon sin, he who knew no sin became sin for us. As we walk through this life, even as sinners, sometimes there's a sin that's so heinous that it vexes our souls and it burdens us and there's a darkness that comes with it. Think of Christ who knew no sin and yet he took sin upon himself and he was judged for sin and his suffering is salvation. His suffering is our redemption. God's going to use suffering in our lives just as he used suffering in his son's life, in Christ's life. So we consider the suffering of Christ and also our beloved brother Paul, according to wisdom given to him, has written to you as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of the things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable men twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of Scripture. Peter is not knocking or putting down Paul's writings. What he is pointing out is Paul's writings are deep. He writes on a a deep level, and people have come up and they've twisted Paul's writings And they also do that with all of Scripture. Be careful that someone doesn't use Scripture and twist it to give you some wrong meaning out of it. God's Word makes sense. And we should be able to read it and rightly divide it. And if someone's telling you something and you're reading the Scriptures and you're like, that doesn't make any sense, that doesn't line up with Scripture, then always go to the Scriptures. In verse 17, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you fall from your own steadfastness. 
being led away with the air of the wicked. Again, this is the end of Peter's life, and he's giving all of these commands, these imperatives uh, to us. The imperative of diligence and consider. And now here's another imperative. Beware, be on watch for your own steadfastness. The believers that Peter's writing to are steadfast. They're walking with the Lord. Peter says, be careful that you don't fall from your steadfastness. Keep going. As we study the Old Testament scriptures, the kings, there was many kings who started off well but didn't finish well. More often than not, that's the case. It's more difficult than we might think to finish well, to continue to walk with the Lord, to continue in that place of of steadfastness. And this is some personal reflection. We're responsible for our own steadfastness in the Lord, not someone else, not someone else. I believe that we're in a time where steadfastness is being challenged. Steadfastness is being challenged. There's a dark side that's happening. The enemy is having his way. We know pornography is at an all-time high in the midst of the the COVID virus. Reports of divorce are up 30%. Domestic violence is skyrocketing. Abuse is skyrocketing. Suicide is skyrocketing. The enemy is wanting to use this time of confusion and division and hopelessness to destroy and wreck our lives. But God is wanting to use it to refine us and to grow us. This is not the time to back off. It's the time to press in, to be steadfast. Say, I'm not moving from the Lord. I'm not moving from spending time with the Lord. I'm not moving from the scriptures. I'm not moving from prayer. I'm not moving from God's people. I'm grieved over the fact that it seems to be a time where it's easy for us as believers to get offended at other believers. And okay, maybe you've been offended by other believers because how they're responding to the COVID virus. Well, don't give up on the body of Christ. This isn't the time to give up on the, the body of Christ because it's like, Well, I don't like how they responded to to the COVID virus. It's like Satan's laughing, going, look, I'm dividing the church. I'm dividing the the body of Christ. They're fighting over how Christians are responding to to the COVID virus. It's like, wait a second. No, we got to be steadfast. We got to be committed to love one another from this fellowship, but also the fellowships throughout the city. Met with some pastors from our city Tuesday night that I really respect. And we we're talking about how different churches in the city are responding to the COVID virus. You know, you know what? Not one church is the same. Not one church is the same. And that's just here in Colorado Springs. So are we going to bad mouth some other church in town because they handle the COVID virus? Like, give me a break. It's like, is that what the enemy has reduced us to? Where I get to tee off on another church because I don't like how they handled the COVID virus? Last time I checked, they still believe that Jesus died on the cross. They still believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So can we rally around that? Absolutely. This is a time to be steadfast. What if unbelievers heard some of these conversations and goes, you as Christians are fighting over how other Christians are responding to the COVID virus? It's like, no, it's time to grow up. Church, it's time to grow up. 
The world needs Jesus. Right now, the world needs to know who Jesus is, and that's going to happen through us loving each other, and we may have some differing opinions on how to handle this. Absolutely. We're going to have different opinions on how to handle this. But there is a bigger banner, and that is love. Satan wants you to give up on the body of Christ, but God wants you to be steadfast. Absolutely. Be steadfast in your sexual integrity. The enemy's going to test your, your sexual integrity. Be steadfast. Don't back off of that. The enemy wants you to give up on worship. Be steadfast in worship. This is not the time for our feelings to get the best of us. But to say, I'm going to worship because God deserves to be worshipped. I'm going to give him the sacrifice of praise whether I feel like it or not. And God will be faithful. He'll be faithful to use these times to grow us if we're willing, but our steadfastness is being tested. And we know that this church that was receiving these letters, First and Second Peter, were being challenged. They were being persecuted. They were being killed. They were being thrown out of their homes. And you better believe that they were tested on their steadfastness. They were tested on, do I really want to follow Christ? Does this mean something to me, or am I going to give up on this? This is not the time to give up on Christ, amen? This is not the time to shrink back. This is not the time to divide over petty things. This is the time to unite, and it's time to fight. It's time to get in the spiritual battle and say, I'm going to fight. God is light, and he overcomes the darkness, and I want my voice to count. I want my voice to be proclaiming the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. I don't know what's going to happen with the election, but I'm on team Jesus. You know, I want to be known as a follower of Christ. And I speak that with boldness, but I also want to speak this with humility because it is so easy to fall from steadfastness. It's so easy to fall from steadfastness. It's so easy for all of us to fall from steadfastness. So that's where we need verse 18. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Grow in grace. This is an imperative as well. It's a command to actually grow in grace. How do we grow in grace? This is that humility to go, Lord, I know my heart. And I know my heart is in this place where it's so easy for me to fall from steadfastness. God, I don't have the strength to be in your word like I should. God, I don't have the strength to fight sin like I should. God, I don't have the strength to unite with believers as I should. God, I need your grace. Grace is for salvation, but grace is also for Christian living. Grace is to get us through each and every day. We need grace to be able to live out the Christian life, to be able to know Jesus in a greater way. And that's that brokenness inside of us, that dependency that says, Lord, I need you. God, I'm having a, such a hard time with being gracious to other believers right now. Lord, help me to grow in grace. God, I'm having a hard time being confident of your love for me. Oh, Lord, help me to grow in grace. God, I'm having such a hard time extending grace to my family. Things are tense and things are difficult. Lord, help me to, to grow in grace. God, I'm having a hard time sharing the gospel and being bold with the message of Christ. Lord, I need your grace. And the encouraging thing is he's got 
mass reservoirs of grace. If he has enough grace to save us, he has more than enough grace to help us. So to grow in grace and then also to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Guys, if we're not growing, we're dying. If we're not growing, we're dying. If we're not growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we're dying. We're drifting. So how do we grow in the knowledge of Christ? Is to press into that relationship with him. Press into time in his word. Press into fellowship. And allow God to give us a greater knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus told us, he declared to us, that eternity is going to be about knowing the Father. The joy of eternity is there's going to be more to know about the Father, more to know about Jesus. So let's start eternity now. (laughs) What's this life all about? It's really about getting to know Jesus in a greater way, growing in grace and growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do humble ourselves before you. God, you see us. And as much as we want to be steadfast, we need your grace. You've seen where we have fallen from steadfastness. And God, it must grieve your heart to see us as believers dividing and fighting over things that are not necessary, that are not essential to salvation. If there ever were a time for the world to see the church loving each other, it's right now. So Lord, would you forgive us? And would you help us? Would you help us to unify? We look at this sobering text that the world is gonna melt away with fervent heat And what really matters in our lives? We want to look for this new heaven and new earth. Look forward to it and hasten it. Give us a renewed confidence and boldness in the gospel that we wouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. So Lord, where you need to do change in us, even as we take communion tonight, we welcome you here. Would you prune us? And would you help us to grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of Christ? In Jesus' name, amen.